This is the fourth day of this February-March 2021 four-day session, and we're going to continue with a book we're reading from entitled Catching a Feather on a Fan, A Retreat with Zen Master, with Master Sheng Yen, and uh, edited by John Crook. And we're going to dive in here with, again, with the poem by Wang Ming. <clears throat> Calming the Mind is the title of the poem. And here's the verse. Using speech or written words to gain the praise of others is something most repulsive. And Ching Yen says, Chan tells us that we should not rely on words. Often it is better to say nothing. In Chan practice, the spoken and the written word is superfluous. Only a communication through a genuine mind is reliable. When old friends or family members have been separated for many years and meet again, what are the first words they say? Often there is so much that could be said that they cannot say anything. They just embrace or shake hands and that is enough. The contact says all the words. Last year I went to mainland China for the first time in many years. I had not seen my brothers for 38 years. So much had happened to them in that time. So much had happened to me also. When we met, we couldn't say anything. There were simply tears running down our faces. I myself was too embarrassed to cry, but tears were falling inside me and twisting my stomach. Everything was communicated just like that. Legend tells us that Shakyamuni passed on the whole Buddha Dharma to the first patriarch, Mahakashapa, without saying any words. The Buddha was just holding a flower in his hand. Mahakashapa smiled, and the Buddha said, that's it. Wang Ming is saying that if you do not truly practice, but instead use the spoken or written word to tell others about your attainment, then that is shameful. In fact, talking is useful. Excuse me. In fact, talking is useless. If people do not act upon these evening lectures and mealtime talks, then these too are useless. If people do not act, then this whole retreat, the lectures, all the words, would be comparable to my bringing a lump of clay from an eastern mountain and dumping it on a western one. The propaganda of mere information is not of use to you within your practice. <clears throat> Some may say, although Chan speaks of no-self, the bodhisattvas still teach compassionately to others. These are good teachings. Just to hear them is good. They should be handed on. So it is. Yet I say to you, without practice, the teachings are not manifest in the world. <clears throat> 
so much depends on the listener. Maybe the listener is more important than the speaker, really. Is the mind receptive? <clears throat> is there right motivation? Sometimes we can hear something again and again and again, such a common experience, and then all of a sudden, on the fifth or the tenth or the fifteenth repetition, it sinks in and you say, oh, why didn't you tell me that? <clears throat> Readiness is everything. And, and that's the reason why the same things are repeated over and over and over again. Even the, the person speaking, even the so-called teacher, needs to hear these things. <clears throat> At least he does in my case. <clears throat> and then skipping, this is day five, early morning, his early morning talk. And he says, today there are two important phrases for you to bear in mind. These are ordinary mind and wanting nothing. The unbiased content of the ordinary state of mind is both natural and everlasting. To be natural, the mind needs to be free from anything artificially created by thought or reasoning, from anything shaped by an experience or judgment. When these things are absent, we say the mind is in its natural state. When the mind is natural, it is in conformity with Tao, <clears throat> with the way. Let me put it this way. Here in the mountains, in this old farmhouse of stone and wood, we're living close to nature. Yet the tools we use and the clock that tells the time remain man-made. They are not completely natural, but for us, the use of such simple tools is natural enough. It is of our nature to use such things. To wear clothes is natural, and we feel comfortable. To take them off and be uncomfortable would not be natural for us, even if, at first sight, nakedness might be nearer to our original condition. Natural is what is appropriate. Natural is this. When there is one, there is one. When there are two, there are two. Things are as they are. We do not need to add criteria of evaluation to fit our moods, thoughts, or judgments. Such a simple state, <clears throat> so difficult to achieve. Whatever is truly natural is everlasting. That is to say, the natural forms part of an unending, timeless process which obeys unchanging principles. The sunlight from the window moves as a patch across the floor. It comes and goes as the clouds move across the sky. The sun itself follows its own unchanging route. The earth revolves on its axis so that we have the experience of the sunrise in the morning and sunset in the evening. The patch of light on the floor appears according to the rules of place, time, and weather. All this is natural and everlasting. Water becomes rain, and rain becomes water. 
This too is everlasting. It is of the eternal. <clears throat> we, we feel this when we are out in the natural world. It's why it's so helpful, so healthy to get outdoors, get out, get under the stars, get into the woods, walk around the block, breathe the air, feel the sun. <clears throat> it's so easy, maybe even more so during the pandemic, I don't know, varies from person to person and situation to situation. But to be shut up in our house with nothing but books and devices, something, something deeper, something eternal that we can find if we, if we just take the time <clears throat> Just a little commercial for getting outdoors. He says, in the practice of Chan, it is important to discover and to maintain the natural basis of the mind. If a practitioner remains with his illusory thoughts, his mind is split. It does not come to rest in its natural state. Without discovering the natural basis, the practitioner sooner or later abandons his quest. He has not hit upon the eternal. Once the eternal is perceived, the practitioner is unlikely to give up, for he has discovered his own basis. I'm reminded of the story of the Buddha, who just before his great awakening, just before the <clears throat> seven days of sitting that preceded it, remembered an experience from his childhood, <clears throat> sitting underneath a tree, and everything fell away. Felt himself to be as vast as space. All of us have times when we've been more in touch with this deeper, truer mind. We were all children, connected in a, in a more immediate way. Zen is a way back to that kind of spontaneity, connection, <clears throat> the natural workings the human being, way out of the thicket of thoughts and opinions, worries, grasping, aversion, greed, anger, delusion. He says, when we are born, the body-mind is in its natural state. Gradually we adopt unnatural contortions, defending ourselves where, if we were wise, we would find that no defense is needed. The practice of Chan enables us to go back to being natural, to rediscover the eternal quality of being. Every day we get up, wash, eat, go to the toilet. All this is natural. Similarly, we need to build into our everyday lives the practice of meditation, 
Let it be a natural part of daily life, not something special set aside with a time set aside for it, but a quality of ongoing awareness. <clears throat> of course, I would add how helpful it is to have a time to sit or some routine that makes sure we do get to the mat. Formal sitting, <clears throat> whether you do it at a specific time or you do it as the Spirit moves you, makes it possible for you to have that quality of collected awareness. To have that infuse your life. He says, when we look at the stream outside, we see the water flowing. What is its purpose? There is no purpose. It is simply flowing. So let it be with practice. Practice itself has no particular purpose. If you give practice a purpose, then it is not natural practice. It is not rooted in the eternal. When your practice has no purpose, when practice itself is the purpose, then it is natural practice. Only this natural practice has the quality we call everlasting. When your practice has no purpose, you're not seeking anything. You are wanting nothing. When you want nothing and there is nothing to want, what is there then? Today is the last day. Please just use an ordinary state of mind to practice. No need for assumptions, moods, emotions, judgments. Simply follow your method. Work hard for no reason. Sit without any purpose in your sitting. Let the natural state arise everlastingly. <clears throat> to sit without purpose, we're led to joy. <clears throat> it's the purpose, it's the the goal orientation. And then, of course, with that comes the evaluation. Am I there? Am I getting close? Am I going in the right direction? All those things sap the integrity, the vibrancy. <clears throat> Such good advice to enjoy your practice. <clears throat> now the next section is day five, breakfast table remarks. The attitude we need to adopt in the practice of Chan is different from the attitude we take when doing work of other kinds, such as an academic study. Not only is it different, it should be quite the opposite. Usually when we are involved in a task that needs discipline or study, we like to get on with the job, to get things done fast. If we hurry and get a move on, then we can get as much done as possible. If we hurry and work hard, then the result is usually proportional. On the other hand, if you take a hurrying attitude in the practice of Chan, you may achieve merely an undesirable result. If you try to hurry in calming your mind, the more hassle you will, gener you will generate. If you hurry to get enlightenment, the more vexations you will create and you will be further away from your goal. 
<clears throat> the practice of Chan involves training in patience, in determination. It requires the development of the will. The purpose of practice is to free ourselves from the self, to go beyond attachments to the self. If we are seeking rapid results, seeking to gratify ourselves in reaching some goal or some attainment, then this is the opposite of the purpose of Chan. If we get anxious because there appears to be no result from practice, we are making a mistake. In Chan, trying to make progress ensures no progress. <clears throat> this is one of those things that probably has to be said 15 or 20 or 50 times. He says, let us return once more to the analogy of the feather and the fan. Before you can get any result from your practice, you have to hold the fan in a very stable and peaceful manner, and if the feather does not end up on your fan, it, it does end up on your fan, it is important not to get excited. If you get too happy, there will be a slight stir of your hand and the feather will be gone. The question is, when will the feather drop on your fan and never fly away again? As long as there is an idea of attainment in which you imagine something and want it, the feather will keep floating away. In fact, the problem will last just as long as the feather and the fan exist for you. Only when there is no person seeking an attainment and no attainment to be realized will the ultimate solution arise. <clears throat> that, of course, is a very advanced state. <clears throat> Moving on, this is day five lunchtime remarks. It says, during practice, a lot of people find it difficult to distinguish between being diligent and being tense, between being lazy and being relaxed. In fact, the mind sometimes needs prodding or even whipping, while at other times it needs comfort or consolation. Applying the method has to be done skillfully. We have to learn through experience the skillful means of practice. If you feel tired or exhausted, it is probably because you have been sitting in too tense a manner. On the other hand, if you are dozing off and nothing seems to be happening, you may be too relaxed and becoming lazy. To find the right balance between tension and relaxation is not easy, always an easy, easy matter. <clears throat> Many of us have a tendency towards one side or the other, tension or relaxation. I think with most people, there's a tendency towards uh, being tense. And even when we hear this and, and take it in, believe it, I know that, that my tension, my, my uh, <clears throat> low-level anxiety and striving, I know this is keeping me tied to the dock. We can, we, and so we try to relax, but it doesn't always go so easily because we're afraid, we're just afraid of being relaxed. You know, it's, it's am I going to look like I'm working? What are people going to think of me? How will I ever get anywhere if I'm, if I'm relaxed? 
I've often told myself and others, if you, if you are trying to go down the middle of a road and stay in the middle, and you keep veering off to the right, in the course of correcting yourself and finding the middle, finding your way to the middle, you're going to have to veer off to the left a little bit. If you never, ever veer off to the left, if you never become too relaxed, it's likely you're going to continue to go off to the right. It's, it's because there doesn't need to be this sense of a hurry, this overwhelming sense of a destination that has to be reached. We have the space, we have the time to find our way. We have to trust ourselves, have to trust the practice. Not, and not be afraid of making mistakes. Maintain our awareness. It's the most essential thing. There's nothing wrong with needing to make a course correction. <clears throat> Xing Yan goes on, Sometimes you may find that you have become too tense. At such a time, the best thing to do is to take a rest. Simply close the eyes and let the mind relax for five to ten minutes, not trying to do anything. It is important, however, to remain in the meditation posture. To lie down would be to lose all focus. Even though you have temporarily abandoned the method, you should not let go of the posture. So <clears throat> this is not something that I've ever heard advocated in our Zendo, but I don't know that it's so wrong uh, if you're really continually frustrated by your inability to uh, let go of your tension. You might try that five or ten minutes, still sitting upright, not indulging in thoughts. He's not talking about letting the mind wander, but not a trying to accomplish anything. <clears throat> He says, in the first days of the retreat, it is important to maintain the posture rigorously and not move about. There is now only half a day left for the retreat. The important thing now is to maintain the focus and peaceful quality of your mind. There is no need to drive the body too hard. If you are still having a lot of pain in the legs or back, then adopt a less problematical posture. If you still have pain, you must nonetheless maintain a minimal amount of discipline. Do not move about too much because that will disturb others. As the retreat progresses, some people can concentrate more and more effectively. But for others, an opposite tendency emerges. Their backs, their legs or back ache more and more, and they find themselves fidgeting about a great deal. Again, this fidgeting may disturb others, and it is important to create a time to relax and to become more peaceful. If you happen to be sitting next to a fidgety person, or even between two of them, then you should assert yourself and maintain the peaceful stability of your mind. <clears throat> this is a difficulty we don't run into as much in online sitting, but <laughs> the, to counterbalance that, we miss the, the support of so many people sitting with us in the same room. And even when you're sitting uh, 
online, there can be people in your house or noise outside or disturbances. In any case, when we're faced with those distractions, we need to maintain, just to maintain our focus and not to get caught up in wishing things were different than they are. He says, in this way, by discovering the skillful means for practice, you become mindful within the practice. You become able to maintain stability and peacefulness irrespective of disturbances within your body or in the room around you. Such training within practice has benefits in everyday life. You cultivate mindfulness and are less susceptible to the impact of others. You are not so easily thrown into laughing or crying fits or a bad temper tantrum. Instead, you maintain an evenness of awareness and are able to respond appropriately to whatever is happening around you. <clears throat> and then skipping ahead, day five, evening talk, Wang Ming goes on to tell us, what common people regard as auspicious, the sage takes as evil. The enjoyment gained is fleeting, but the sorrow is everlasting. And he says, by now some people have had some experience of the meaning of practice, and others may feel envious of their good fortune. From an ordinary point of view, such experiences are indeed valuable. But from an ultimate point of view, they are not to be regarded as good. They are nothing special. We've been talking about people climbing mountains. Some encounter easily easy, flattish areas, while others come across exceedingly steep slopes. We are pleased with the easy slopes and feel the mountain climbing is going well. But on the flat area, the climber is not getting any higher. Someone struggling with cliffs and boulders on the steep slope may be on the quicker path. The climber wandering along the flat area may be going around the mountain rather than up it. This is especially likely if he is climbing in a cloud. Yesterday morning I said it was tough luck if someone seemed always to be on a steep slope. Actually, this may not be the case at all. Such a climber may be the most fortunate. Some years ago, during a retreat in the USA, I described the practice of Chan as like climbing a tall mountain. This mountain is made of glass. Furthermore, its surface is covered with layers of oil and grease. It is extremely slippery. If you try to climb it, there is no way you will not slide down. Nonetheless, this is the task before you. The mountain is very tall, but still you must climb, and still you slide down. This is the way Chan practice is. In the end, you discover that the glass mountain is an illusion. It has no real existence. One day, when you climb up some distance and then fall right back to the bottom, you suddenly come to see that top and bottom are not different. Indeed, they are the same. To understand this, you have to become a climber. You have to make the effort to climb the slippery mountain. Unless you climb, you can never know that top and bottom are the same. Wang Ming is saying that for one who has never practiced, 
Certain states and certain experiences are good and valuable. The sage, however, recognizes that attachments to experiences or high states are a hindrance, for they do not lead to liberation. The exalted states, the peaks, must also be put down. You have to go beyond this type of evaluation. You may enjoy certain states or conditions and come to value them highly. It is like climbing up to a flat area with beautiful trees and running brooks. You arrive there and find it quite gorgeous. So you sit down saying, oh, how beautiful this is. You forget about the climb. And the next time you make the ascent again, you sit down in the comfortable spot. Perhaps you enjoy a snooze. In your dreams, you are lotus eating. Have some of you found such a place on the mountain? The ancient patriarchs cautioned their disciples about this, especially those who had had a first taste of enlightenment. They told them that the road ahead was still very long. If you have only just begun to walk, then there is a long way to go. If you have had a glimpse of seeing the nature, then you have to practice even harder. Of course, when you fully understand, there is nowhere to go. The danger is that people who have had a taste of enlightenment confuse pleasing sensations with the real thing. They believe that's it. These sensations are perceptual experiences, mental responses or states which are refreshing and give one a feeling of calm, peace, or even a unity of body and mind. All these pleasing experiences have nothing to do with enlightenment. They simply arise on the path. At this point, the wise practitioner should be very careful. Maybe you have come to experience the unity of previous thought with the subsequent one. <clears throat> Dropping away of time. The experience is valuable. It is a sign of strong meditative practice, yet this is not enlightenment. Becoming one is becoming one, that is all. Yet because it feels good, and because you do not know what enlightenment is, you may mistake it for the real thing. So be cautious. Just continue without attachment to states that arise. As Wang Ming says, such enjoyments are fleeting, but the illusion might last forever. Again, perhaps you have seen the nature. <clears throat> That's a phrase that uh, Xing Yan uses for a Kensho. You have perceived the emptiness of self in all things. You have experienced an awareness of the absence of self. You have seen the empty state where there is no self because the self has vanished. You have had an initial taste of enlightenment. You need no longer doubt it. <clears throat> That's the value of the experience. You need no longer doubt it. Yet as soon as you realize it and think about it, you are no longer there anymore. When you speak of it, you are speaking of something past, a one-time experience. Such an individual is in danger if he then thinks he is enlightened. What was it? Now it is only a dead experience. So the word enlightenment is used really in two different ways. <clears throat> um, the, the, the deeper meaning of enlightenment is genuine liberation no longer caught up in achievement and experiences. 
but it's also used sort of loosely if somebody has some sort of insight, seeing the nature. But that is, in the end, that's an experience. <clears throat> it brings some understanding, it definitely brings uh, motivation to continue on this path. But if you emphasize the experience and confuse it with uh, great attainment, very often the wind can go out of your sails and the practice does not continue. And of course that's why people are warned after an experience like that. They have to work even harder. He says if you take this attitude, <clears throat> there is no way you can make progress. Wang Ming tells us that if we have a good experience and hold on to it, evaluating it and wanting to repeat it, then we will have a very long night ahead of us. <clears throat> I'm going to skip on further. This is day six, early morning. He says, this is our last early morning meeting together, so I would like to leave you with two sets of principles. The first for your practice of meditation, and the second for your everyday life. When you are meditating, the three principles to bear in mind are regulate the body, regulate the breath, regulate the mind. When you sit, it is important to sustain the correct posture <clears throat> to regulate the body. This is most beneficial for the whole practice. Sitting correctly is good for health. It can even cure certain problems. The legs should be either in the lotus or the half lotus position. However, if these positions are too difficult for you, then there are other approved postures that you may use. <clears throat> and of course, if necessary, you can do Zazen sitting in a chair. Doing some yoga to make the legs flexible is much to be recommended, especially for beginners who find sitting uncomfortable. I think most people know, well, I'm not sure, many people know that Roshi Kaplow, when he first went to Japan uh, in his early 40s, I believe, back in 1953, so what would you have been, 41 at that point, <clears throat> had to use a chair to sit. When he came back to the United States, 1966, he was sitting in full lotus, effortlessly. And that's because of um, real diligence in the practice of yoga. He really took it to heart. I think it was something that he picked up from Hardaroshi, who would do uh, yoga on a regular basis. There are a lot of really interesting pictures of Roshi Kaplow uh, doing yoga. One of them, he's doing a headstand in the full lotus. <clears throat> yeah, very often, uh, pain in the knees, for instance, can come not because of a problem in the knee so much as the fact that we're not uh, stretched out enough in the hips. He says, 
The back, neck, and head should be vertical but not strained. The mouth should be closed with the tip of the tongue touching the upper palate. The hands should be held in the lap with the fingers joined in the proper way. Usually you should keep the eyes open and directed downwards at about a 45 degree at, a, at about 45 degrees to the horizontal. Once you have adopted a correct sitting posture, you should make sure you are not sitting tensely with the muscles under strain. It is important not only to hold the correct posture, but to do so in a relaxed manner. The breath should be smooth and natural. It is not necessary to control it in unusual ways. Just notice the breath flowing in and out through the nostrils. After some time, move on to observing the breath as it reaches down into the abdomen, noticing also the slight movement of the abdomen itself. Once you have focused for some time on these movements, let the center of awareness simply come to rest in the region of your navel. <clears throat> it's extremely helpful to have our center of gravity low um, in our sitting and in our moving about. Uh, sometimes with sitting it can help just to uh, be aware of our seat touching the cushion, that point of contact. <clears throat> at some, at somewhere Sheng Yen says, let your body sink into the cushion, let your bottom sit, sink into the cushion, and your mind sink into the practice, sink into the method. You can also put your awareness in the palm of your left hand, the hand that's on top as you sit in the Zazen Mudra. For some people, that's a helpful way of getting their attention down lower. It's something that Zen Master Dogen recommended. But the main thing is just to not to be stuck up in the, the head and the neck and the shoulders. Get a sense of the whole body. So if there's a weight, stability down below, and the rest of the body just floats up, the chest open. Roshi uh, always recommends lengthening the back of the neck, bringing the chin in as if you were pulling in a drawer. The, I think that one of the keys to finding your posture <clears throat> finding your seat is to to find where you where, where it feels good it feel when when you're when you even if you still need to correct yourself from time to time as long as you don't feel like you're fighting yourself like you're pushing against tense muscles you're on the right track <clears throat> there's a saying in Japan that it takes 3 years to find your seat and I guess for some people just beginning, that's kind of discouraging news. Um, would that it were only three years. Maybe three years to adequately find your seat in order to do effective Zazen, although you can do effective Zazen from day one, but to truly become, let's put it this way, your seat becomes more and more stable, more and more 
comfortable, natural, maybe is the best word, as time goes on. It doesn't stop getting better. It's my experience. section I want to get to. This is towards the end of his closing ceremony and final words. And he says, there are now just a few final things to say. I myself do not have great practice. It is simply that I left home when I was 13 years old, and now that I am 61, I've had 48 years collecting some experience of Buddha Dharma. I have come to realize how great and how good this dharma is and how very few people truly appreciate it. I am just an ordinary person, exactly like everyone else here. I am not a Buddha. All I am doing is trying to apply what I know in order to help others. It is not I who helps others. It is the Buddha dharma that is helping people. Yesterday morning, I said I felt like a traveling merchant who goes to far-off places carrying a bag of wares. In this distant place, I would like to open my bag and leave everything behind. Then I can go home empty-handed, at ease, and happy. Whether the things I have brought here are useful to you people or not is for you to say. If it has been of use, naturally I shall feel grateful. But the bringing of the Dharma here is actually not for any purpose. It has not come for any reason at all. The Buddha Dharma itself is the purpose. So in bringing the Dharma here, I am not asking for anything in return. I would like to suggest that you adopt the same attitude. Each of us can bring the Dharma to him or herself through training and then reveal the benefits to other people. Very often in the teachings we are asked to express gratitude to the Buddha and the three treasures. But Buddha is already complete, perfect. He does not need anything from anybody. The best way to express our gratitude is to reveal the benefits of the Dharma to everybody, to every sentient being. When Shakyamuni Buddha was about to pass away, his disciples asked him, Buddha, after you have passed away, upon whom can we rely? The Buddha replied, the teachings that I have given you for some 40 years, that is the Dharma upon which you should rely. You too should rely upon the Dharma, the precepts, and your own efforts, and not upon the teacher. Of course, if there were a great Chan master who came to Britain, that would be good, Yet whether there is a Chan master in Britain or not is not the crucial matter. So long as people have a good understanding of the Dharma and practice accordingly, benefits will arise. Even if I were to come here every year until I was a hundred years old, it would only be at certain times that the Dharma was practiced. The Buddha Dharma is eternal and ever-present. This person, Sheng Yen, is of no importance to you. The vital spark is the teaching that he leaves behind with you. 
And this dharma is not my dharma, it is the Buddha dharma of Chan. Well, no better place to stop than at the end of the book. Uh, time is up. We'll recite the four vows. <clears throat>